Chapter 26, you can open the Bibles there, and if you're wondering why we have those alarms installed, it's uh, for the protection of the children, primarily in the church. Uh, There's a couple of points throughout the church where, say someone got downstairs and no one noticed it or something like that, you would want to know if someone was leaving through one of those doors. So that's the purpose of that, and uh, obviously we don't want a kid to run out that door during the service or something like that, and it provides good comic relief, so why not, right? Genesis chapter 26, we're in this series, Unfinished, Moving Along. Now, It's interesting in um, the way that the Holy Spirit works sometimes. He puts together a theme for the service uh, that we didn't plan to put together per se. Uh, We didn't necessarily plan to have Robin here, and then we've got a baby dedication after this. And we're looking at a text that uh, carries along the same idea, which talks about children and parenting and those types of things. Now, as a parent, I think one of the things you, you quickly learn when you hold that first child of yours, is uh, you're probably not well-suited for this yet, right? You feel like you're holding this precious bundle of joy and you're asking yourself the question, why would God trust me with this baby, right? Well, that's what I thought. Katie probably didn't. Katie thought that of me as well. Um, One of the things that I've struggled with as a parent is the thought of how am I going to protect them from all the challenges that life presents? They fall off the monkey bars. I don't know what it is about eight months old, but they love dirt for some reason, and they eat it. Colds, flus, sometimes more significant uh, illnesses come to them. At some point... There's going to be a person that breaks their hearts. And no, I cannot plan their life out for them. But the the reverse side of that thought is, what happens when I protect them too much? You know, the generation that's growing up since 1995, Generation Y, uh, some have nicknamed them the bubble wrap generation. Uh, They've been so kind of tightly bound and protected that Uh, We're wondering, are they going to grow into adulthood? There's an excellent article from Focus in the Family, and they ask this question, are you protecting your kids from reality or preparing them for life? The author notes, kids need to feel special and believe they can be successful, but this doesn't mean we shield them from reality. The opposite is true. Genuine, healthy self-esteem develops when caring adults identify children's strengths, but also allow them the satisfaction and maturity that comes from persevering through failure, pain, and disappointment. The authentic triumph builds tough, emerging adults. In the article, he notes four ways that we might prevent our children from growing up. First, we don't allow them to fail. Second, We value removing all pain, whether that would be physical or emotional. Third, we prioritize their happiness. Fourth, we take away the fight. Now, that third one, that third tendency, we prioritize their happiness, is quite the paradox. When you make happiness the goal in a child's life, you might be preventing them from experiencing the genuine article. Why? 
Because happiness is not a destination. Happiness is not a goal. It's a byproduct. Happiness enters our lives when we are pursuing loftier goals, such as giving and serving and participating in God's grand plan for this life. Now, don't miss the point, though. Life requires struggles for our kids to grow up. Uh, You had to go through struggles. Your kids have to go through struggles. Healthy parenting involves steering them and guiding them and instructing them as they navigate the challenges for the first time themselves. And you know the thing with the life of faith is it's exactly the same thing. Faith requires struggle in order for the believer to mature. As we look at this chapter, Genesis 26, we're going to see a theme that Moses doesn't want us to miss. It goes like this, Isaac is just like his dad, Abraham. You've heard the expression, like father, like son. That's what Moses wants us to see. We see it in a couple of ways. If you look for certain key phrases in the passages, there's two that really stand out. One is blessing. Blessing occurs in verse 3, 12, 24, 29. Essentially, Moses wants you to see that the blessing has moved from Abraham to Isaac. The second phrase is Abraham, his father, which occurs in verse 3, 5, 15, 18, 24. In addition to these key words, Moses also creates a strong parallel between Isaac's life in Genesis chapter 26 and Abraham's life through Genesis 12 and onward, as we see. For example, Abraham receives God's call. Isaac receives God's call. Abraham passes off Sarah. He lies about Sarah. Isaac lies about Rebekah. Abraham quarrels with Lot's men. Isaac quarrels with Abimelech's men. Abraham is reassured by God. Isaac reassured by God. Abraham makes a treaty with Abimelech at Beersheba. Guess what Isaac does? He makes a treaty with Abimelech at Beersheba. Is anybody seeing double yet? It's practically the same story. And that's the point. Moses wants us to understand that Isaac must go through the same struggles that his father did so that he, too, can learn the same lessons. And this is true of any believer in the life of faith. We must go through the struggles that we see in this story so that God can take us through school so that we can learn more about faith. And these struggles include trials, moral failures, and opposition. So we begin the story in verse 1. It picks up with a struggle that Abraham, his father, struggled with too. I think you'll hear the theme in verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land. Besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Did you catch that little phrase there, basically? There was a famine. Uh, It wasn't quite the one that Abraham went through, but it was very similar, like father-like son. And then Isaac, in response to that, starts heading south, like father-like son. It's highly likely that Isaac was on his way to Egypt, and God tells him not to head in that direction. You might remember that Egypt represents that place of earthly security. Uh, When we take matters into our own hands, 
when we believe that we can set up certain situations and safety nets to prevent anything bad from happening in our world. But there's a big problem with that thought process. You can't control those kind of things. Uh, You might be in a bad situation right now. Maybe your marriage is hanging on by a thread. Maybe your child is getting so disobedient that you want them to bring back that show, the super nanny, so that you could be a contestant on it. Have you ever just felt like your life's getting out of control? And if so, if you've ever felt that way, the tendency in our life is to want to escape the situation. Yet, many of these types of situations, God's answer for you is not to run, but it is to stay. And that's what God tells Isaac. Look at verses 2 through 5. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in the land and I will be with you and bless you for to you and your offspring I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give you the offspring of these la- uh, your offspring these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes. And my laws. Now, God's encouragement is for him to stay, don't run, because if you run, you don't build spiritual stamina and endurance. Sometimes God needs you to stay right where you are because that's what he's doing. He's building you up, he's strengthening you. And God encourages Isaac to stay in two ways. First, he promises Isaac that he will be with him. And he grounds that promise with the fact that he's already been with Abraham. He reiterates those promises that he had made to Abraham so long ago. God can bless Isaac no matter what the conditions are. Did you know that famine isn't the great neutralizer of God's promises? Famine doesn't put God's promises on pause. God's promises continue to move forward. God can bless in all kinds of different circumstances. He can bless in bad economies. God can bless in the midst of a bad marriage. He can bless a difficult ministry. He can bless a work environment that seems challenging and hostile to you. On and on and on, God can bless. You don't need to turn south. It's been um, said that unbelief asks, how can I get out of this? But faith asks, what can I get out of this? So the thing that God wants Isaac to understand is that obedience leads to God's blessings in a life. This is what God did in the life of Abraham He wanted him to learn the same thing his father did. Listen to what he says again about Abraham. Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Isn't that interesting language? If you're familiar with the Old Testament, those are the types of terms that God would use to refer to the Mosaic law. How could Abraham obey something that hadn't been invented yet, that hadn't come to the people of Israel? That was hundreds of years later. How could Abraham obey that? Well, I think what the Bible wants us to see is that he could by faith. 
That's the point. Abraham walked with God, and as a natural outflow of that walk with God, Abraham did the things that please God. The Christian life is not meant to be a a life where we grit our teeth and we clench our fists and we just keep trying and trying and trying. That's not faith. That's force. And God doesn't want to force you to do anything. In fact, as we look at the Christian life, it's an outflow of a heart that loves God. When a person loves the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, guess what happens to obedience? Obedience takes care of itself. This is how Abraham could keep the law of God before it was written on stone tablets because the law of God was being written on his heart as he followed God. So Isaac's first lesson is this. Trials require perseverance. Isaac, stay. Isaac, learn how to obey. And in the midst of that, I will take care of your situation and circumstances. After this encounter, Isaac does decide to stay. He stays in the region of Gerar. Now, when I think of the region of Gerar, geography is very important in the book of Genesis. This is the southern part of the promised land. It's almost like having one foot in, one foot out, if you will, when he's in this region. And we see his life take a sour turn. He turns to a bad habit that his father had so long ago. Verse 7, when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. (laughs) Aren't you getting tired of hearing the same story over and over and over again? I mean, every single time, it seems like three times now. Wait, it has been three times now. Why do they keep doing the same thing? Well, let's ask the question a little differently this time. Why do we tend to be more like mom and dad than we're willing to admit? Have you ever heard yourself saying the things that your parents said to you when you were a kid to your kids? Maybe it was even one of those things where you said, I'm never going to say that to my kids. That was so annoying. And it's kind of like a record on repeat. You know, my parents used to say to me, because I said so and I wanted an explanation, you can't just say because I said so. Now I say because I said so. And it's not just our our favorite phrases that our kids will repeat. It's our flaws, too. I mean, it doesn't matter how much bubble wrap you put around that child. You can protect them from the things outside and all of those things, but you can't protect them from you. Isaac learned how to be uh, deceptive from his father when dad was afraid. Dad concocted an elaborate lie Now Isaac is afraid he does the same thing. This is one of those sobering realities of life. In times of stress or threat, we find ourselves repeating the things our parents did. When you're getting stressed out at work, maybe you retire into your room by yourself, reading the newspaper or watching TV, checking out. Because that's what dad did. Or when you're going to settle an argument or something like that, it kind of leads up to this harsh moment where you say things that you know you shouldn't say, you slam a door, you walk out of the room because, well, 
That's what mom did. Or it has something to do with the finances or something to do with using anger to control the home. On and on it goes, like parent, like child. And we even use some of these things because in the moment they actually work. But the problem is that the consequences that our parents had to live with will be the consequences that we have to live with. Like his father, Isaac's consequence is that he was found out. Look at verses 8 and 9. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your, your wife. How then could you say she is your sister? That word laughing is a word play here in the text. You remember what Isaac's name means? Laughter. Hmm. Laughing is laughing with his sister, only his kind of laughing is no light laughing of play. It's flirtatious. It's charged with sexual energy. This is the kind of laughing that you do not do with your sister. At another level, there is an implication that laughter, Isaac, has had a lapse in faith. Uh, The word laughter can also mean the word mockery. Maybe Isaac is making a mockery of the promise of God that his name embodies by deceiving these people and walking by fear instead of faith. Well, Abimelech does not find Isaac's little joke to be funny at all. Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is your sister? And just like dad, Isaac's response is puny. Because I thought, lest I die because of her. I mean, come on, dude. Where is God in that response? Is there even a modicum of faith involved in that? God says, go. God says that I will be with you, that I will bless you. And you say, I made up this silly lie because I was afraid I would die. Well, Abimelech does not find this to be a laughing matter. Verse 10. What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Isaac's failure to trust God tarnishes his reputation. Like his father so long ago who did the same thing, he also tarnishes the reputation of God. You see, When we're committing moral failures in life, we might think that our acts are happening in private. But there's always Abimelechs all over society. And Abimelech, when he looks out the window and sees us living in a way that is contradictory to the faith that we say we proclaim, can see through the ruse. Abimelechs need to see the people of God acting like the people of God. So Isaac's second lesson is this. Even if you find yourself in the right place, the promised land, God still requires righteousness. Deception cannot lead to blessing. Indeed, no sin can ever lead to God's blessing. We have to be walking in obedience and righteousness to him. 
So he receives his lumps, he puts his Gerar moment behind him, and he begins to see the blessings of God take shape in his life again as he walks in obedience. Verses 12 through 13, And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. I mean, imagine that. A hundredfold blessing in the time of famine. One of the things I love about God is with God, there is redemption. With God, there is redemption. God doesn't take the things of your past and uh, put it all over social media and let it go viral. God doesn't take your past and say that you can never move past your past. God is willing to work in and through your situation. And I gotta tell you, as I look out at society today, boy, there doesn't seem to be a lot of redemption anymore or forgiveness or letting go, but not with God. God doesn't treat your past that way. He doesn't want to shame you with it. I love how in this story, Isaac receives the blessing of God the right way. He doesn't take a single penny from the hand of Abimelech. He doesn't get rich off of him. The rabbis comment on this verse by saying, rather the dung of Isaac's mule than all of Abimelech's gold. I like that. I'd rather have the worst of God's blessings than all the blessings and riches of the world. Isaac moves beyond his past and God blesses him. But as can happen, Isaac's joy doesn't make everybody happy. Not everybody's celebrating his riches and rewards. Verses 14 to 16, look there. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells of his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us for you are much mightier than we So the Philistines see the blessings of Isaac. They envy him. Now, envy means intense jealousy. Uh, They want what he has. Mark Twain once said, There is always something about your success that uh, displeases even your best friends. Abimelech's pronouncement is essentially sending Isaac off to economic ruin. Take everything, go into the desert, where there will be no water to sustain you. You know, there's times in this life when you are walking where people are going to be envious of you. It'll be their goal to take away what you have, to hurt you, to manipulate you. And our tendency as people is what? We want to fight back because we're good Americans, right? America, we fight back. We defend our rights. We get even. But do we have to do that? Do we have to get even? And I would submit to you, no. Why? Because God owns the supply. He's able to supply despite what others do to us. If he's in control of everything, then no matter what they do, they can't rob us of God's blessing. God's the one who uniquely provides those things. So as we watch the next events unfold, Isaac demonstrates that he understands this principle, that he can trust God 
for God's provisions, and he doesn't have to fight back for his rights. Look at verses 17 to 20. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham, and he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servant dug in the valley and found there a well of uh, spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek because they contended with him. So by naming this well by uh, the name that Abraham had given it, Isaac is essentially saying, this is our property. Uh, his herds are getting long, uh, larger, so the servants start digging around. And you've got to understand, living in a desert community like this, to find a well is like finding a needle in a haystack, Right? Uh, It's like winning the Powerball in some ways. I mean, this is a significant thing when you find a well, especially a well when they dug down 40 to 50 feet that has an underground reservoir of water that's fresh. Okay, they would call that living water. It would be nourishing to these people. So Isaac's antagonists are watching Isaac find these needles in a haystack And they want the blessing. They want the success. And so they take the well from him. Now you have to understand that these squabbles over this water is essentially trying to take away Isaac's livelihood. No water, no herds, no herds, no food. And the situation's just wrong. It's unfair. It's unjust. I mean, he found the water. He gave it the name but they say it's ours. And what's more, there's no guarantee that he's going to find water again. Like I said, it's a big desert out there. But Isaac determines in his heart that he can trust God with his circumstances. Look at verse 21. It says he moves on and then they dug, what? Another well. And they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. So here again, another needle in a haystack. They find another well, and they rob it from him again. He names the first well Esek, the second Sitna. Esek means dispute, Sitna opposition. Uh, Even though he continues to receive unjust treatment, he doesn't fight back. He continues trusting God to supply him richly in his circumstances. Verse 22, God delivers, and he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Isaac learns in the school of opposition that he can depend on God no matter his circumstances, no matter what enemies throw at him. Even if finding a well is a needle in a haystack, with God you will find the well, repeatedly. And he does. And why is that? Because God's ability to provide, his capacity to provide, is limitless. So when your enemies come up against a limitless God, guess who wins every single time? It's interesting as the story moves on how geography and location are so important in the book of Genesis. You'd think that after Isaac discovers this well in Rehoboth, that he would stay there. God had made space. He would settle down. However, verse 23 makes this note, and it tells us that 
Isaac goes back to a familiar place called Beersheba. This is the place where Abraham spent a lot of time. It's the place where Abraham in the book of Genesis tended to be at his spiritual best. And I would suggest that Isaac's decisive choice to move back to Beersheba represents a change of thinking in the man. You see, before going through the lessons God had for him, it appears that Isaac would make his decisions by asking the question, where is the best place I can go? Now it seems he's asking the question, where do I sense God wants me to be? Those might sound like very similar questions, but really in a a spiritual plane, those, those questions couldn't be any further apart. Where's the best place I can go is based upon human faculties, human determination, human wisdom. Where's the place that God wants me to be is based upon faith. And sometimes God wants you to go somewhere or be somewhere that seems contradictory to what this is saying. And God meets Isaac in this place of faith, verses 25 and 26. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug another needle in the haystack, a well. See, the greatest lesson, though, that we almost learn in this life of faith is this. God's presence is God's greatest provision. It's better than the provisions of Egypt. It's better than uh, creating crafty schemes to take care of your needs. God's presence is better than fighting for your own rights for your, from your opponents. You see, God takes each one of his children through these schools, these lessons of faith, trials, moral challenges, opposition, because he wants us to come to the recognition, understanding that I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, I am with you and I will bless you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that truth? God is with you. God is the one who brings about the real blessing in your world. You see, friends, you have to know something about the character and nature of God. God is omnipresent. If you ever ask yourself the question, is there somewhere I can go? Is there some kind of circumstance that I can enter into that God may not follow? People think those kind of things. But is that true? And the answer is no. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God said this, Am I a God who is only close at hand, says the Lord? No. I am far away at the same time. Can anyone hide from me in a secret place? Am I not everywhere in all the heavens and all the earth? In every situation you face, particularly because you are a child of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, God's presence is implicit. There is no question about it. He is here. He is with you. 
Theologians call this principle the Emmanuel principle. God is with you. And when you learn this most important question or lesson in life, God is with me, it turns everything about your life upside down because no longer are you making decisions about your life and wondering to yourself, well, is this really going to work out? No longer are you reacting to fear in life. No longer are you seeing your only recourse in life to defend your own rights. No, we don't have to let circumstances dictate our lives. Why? Because God is with us, and he's in control. And we start seeing that, guess what happens with our opponents too? They start seeing it. Look at verses 26 to 33. I think this is amazing how this story unfolds. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, Just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. Yeah, right. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace. I wonder if God wants Christians to be peacemakers. Hmm. Listen to the words out of the horse's mouth, the pagan king's mouth. We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. You are now the blessed of the Lord. Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. This is a lesson we learned through Isaac. It's also a lesson that I learned through the story of a little brave boy who sought peace with the man who had hurt his own parents. The Soviet captain Marco saw the boy approaching and snarled at him, What is it? What do you want? And uh, the little guy swallowed back his fear. He was only 12. He stood before the communist officer and he said, Captain, You have put my parents in prison. Today is my mom's birthday, and I always give my mom a flower for her birthday. But my mom taught me something. She told me to love my enemies and to reward evil with good, so I've brought this flower for the mother of your children instead. Please take it home to your wife tonight and tell her about my love and the love of Christ. Captain Marco, who had watched unmoved as Christians had been unmercifully beaten, walked around that table with tears in his eyes, and he hugged that little boy in a fatherly embrace. Marco's heart was changed by this gift of Christ's love. He could no longer arrest and torture Christians, and soon he himself would be arrested. 
Only months after the boy's visit to his office, Marcos slumped in a filthy prison cell surrounded by some of the same Christians that he had previously arrested and tortured. He tearfully told his cellmates of the boy who had given him a simple gift, and he considered it an honor to share a cell with those he had previously hunted and attacked. Do you see it? How God's presence, knowing that God is with you, can radically change the course of events as you just pursue the things that he's calling you to do. And we learn that lesson through even a little child. God's teaching us these lessons. He wants to teach you that he's with you. And as you learn that, well, if God's with you, you learn that you can trust him implicitly. If God's with you, you can learn to choose peace over conflict. If God's with you, then nothing can be taken away from you. In fact, this was the type of knowledge that sustained Paulus, a prisoner in a Russian gulag who was undergoing torture. It was getting late, and he had endured hours of beating from a Russian guard. After he had stopped, he looked at him and said, we are not going to torture you anymore. And he said this with a cruel smile on his face. No, we are going to send you off to Siberia where the snow never melts. It's a place of great suffering. You and your family will fit in well. Paulus, instead of being depressed, smiled. The whole earth belongs to my father, Captain. Wherever you send me, I will be on my father's earth. The captain looked at him sharply. Well, we'll take away everything you own. Well, Captain, you will need a high ladder for my treasures are stored up in heaven. We will put a bullet between your eyes, shouted the captain now angrily. If you take away my life in this world, my real joy and beauty in life will begin. I am not afraid of being killed. The captain grabbed Paulus by his tattered prison shirt and screamed into his face, We will not kill you. We will keep you locked up alone in a cell and allow no one to come see you. You cannot do that, Captain. I have a friend who can pass through locked doors and iron bars. No one can separate me from the love of Christ. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer?